This Sunday, we are beginning our Imagine series. This is going to be our stewardship series this year as we imagine a world that is fundamentally different than the world that is presented to us outside these walls. Today, I want to talk about the topic of peace. Now, peace might seem strange to start, especially given that we are so close to the presidential election that the world seems to be rife with issues from police brutality to any number of terrorist acts to the fact there's a hurricane pressing in on the East Coast. The word peace might seem a bit flimsy, like it's some kind of illusion or fairy tale that can't hold up against the harsh realities of this world. And yet, let us always be reminded of the words of our Lord. In me, you will find peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have conquered the world. Pray with me now. From the cowardice that dares not face new truth, from the laziness that is contented with half-truth, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, Good Lord, deliver us. Amen. Believe it or not, when I was in high school, I was on a lacrosse team. It was Chapel Hill, so everybody was encouraged to play, and everybody was given an award, so I think I got the best effort award every year. I was no star athlete. But I really enjoyed playing. I liked being outside, I liked being on a team, and so... Afternoon after afternoon, I would go to the lacrosse field and I would run somewhat purposefully up and down the field and cradle my lacrosse stick like I had some clue what I was doing. But I have to say that tragically, as part of that high school lacrosse team, I was also part of one of the saddest events to hit that school at that time. One of the teammates on our lacrosse team one spring ended up dying. She had some undiagnosed heart condition, and she was at practice one day, and then she wasn't the next. And I have to say, I also, I, I didn't know her very well. Of all the young women on the team, I had probably had a few conversations with her, and but I didn't really know her that well. She was a year below me in school. She was also a much better athlete. And so we didn't have many opportunities to talk other than just um, on the sidelines. But I felt like I should go to her funeral. I was on her team, and she was the first person I knew who was my age to die. So I went to the funeral, and I only found out when I got there that the parents had asked for the members of the team to all sit together up front in the church. Now the church was packed, as you might imagine, and here the parents had us come and process in and sit in the front of the church. And I remember at the time being so uncomfortable because I felt like I wasn't worthy of being up there that I, 
I didn't know her very well, and yet by simply by being on the team with her, I was now sitting beside her parents and her younger brother and her family who were in the throes of grief. And as I thought about this passage and I thought about those parents, I think perhaps they were teaching a valuable lesson. For they were telling all who were present that groups matter. Teams matter. Community matters. Church matters. And there's plenty of times in our lives where we alone are going to be unable to find any sense of peace. But yet that's when we lean on those groups that we work and play and spend time with. Those groups that understand us and understand where we're coming from. And when we are unable to find peace in the midst of so much pain and turmoil and craziness, they can help do it for us. I think Paul understood this very well. Imagine, if you will, in Philippians, Paul was writing this letter from prison. He did not know what was going to happen to him. Probably he was going to be executed. He was separated. He was captured. He was in a small space. He was writing to people that he so longed to be with. A group, a community, a faith group of men and women and children that he had known and loved. And he wanted, there's just this beautiful longing in this passage because he so wanted to be among that group among that people. There's also this longing in the passage because he wants them to be the group, the community, the church that he knows that they can be. He had seen them from the beginning. He had known them from those awkward first moments. He had seen them come together and first share their journeys and their stories. And now he sees and hears rumors that there's divisions possible, internal and external. And he so desperately wants them to stay together. Because he knows the world is a tough and tumultuous place. And he knows the way forward will only be made sure if they stay together and collectively find that peace. Why? Why was it just so important to Paul that they be together as a community? Why was it just so important to these parents that this team sit up front at their daughter's funeral? Because they knew, they knew without a doubt that was the only way forward. That was the only way the community collectively could find peace, was together in those groups, in those teams, in those groups of friends. It reminds me of how when I was serving on a church staff years ago, I had a senior pastor who would always instruct a family before they went into a funeral that as they went through the order of service, the first thing they would be asked to do was to stand and sing the opening hymn. But you'd always tell them that they didn't have to sing. That if their hearts were too burdened with grief and pain and they couldn't sing the alleluias or sing the songs of praise, to have faith that the other brothers and sisters in Christ, those other friends and family who'd gathered on that day would sing for them. They would give voice when the family was unable to do so. 
It reminds me of an older man in a congregation I once served who found out that he was going to have a colostomy bag for the rest of his life. And he was in just throes of despairs. He was a doer, he was a worker, he was a stern and private man. And the thought of having this around him just broke his heart until he found a group of other older men who would meet and talk about what life was like day in and day out with that addition, with that medical device, and gave him that peace that he was able to move on. It reminds me of a friend who just this past week marked the one-year anniversary of losing her husband. She was 25. They had three kids under the age of three at the time. This past week, she marked that anniversary by gathering with her friends and with family upon a field, and she put her three kids, one still crawling, in the middle of the circle of friends and family, and she had them watch while everyone there let balloons off in memory of their dad. The group below sang hymns of praise. In each of these situations, you see a group, whether it be the funeral goers, whether it be the support group for men with colostomy bags, whether it be these family and friends who come alongside this widow in her tragic loss. In each case, it's a community forming intentionally to bring about This image of communal peace, of Christian brothers and sisters leaning upon each other for understanding and help and healing and hope comes again and again in amazing ways throughout this scripture. One of the things that stood out to me was early on in this passage, we see in verse 3, Paul referring to someone as his loyal companion. Now, we don't know exactly who he was referring to within the church of Philippi, but that term loyal companion, when translated more directly from the Greek, is true yoke mate or genuine yoke fellow. And I was intrigued by this notion of a yoke binding people together. And as I studied some more, I learned that a yoke was an ancient symbol for mutual cooperation, for ones working together. And as I came to learn, this was very important in the early Christian church to understand this concept of being yoked to one another. It's like, uh, would be frequently referred to in a marriage or in a friendship, something where two are brought together and yoked as one. And it was important for them as this movement began because there were two distinct groups within the early church movement. There was one group, like Paul, of wandering missionaries. I mean, these were the purists. These were the ones that were going to go out to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel. They were going to deny their friends, their family, not get married, not hold jobs, not stay in the same place because they were committed. They were going to spread the cause. And then there was another group. These would be more like several people in the church of Philippi. These were the urban dwellers. These were believers in the gospel, but they kept their jobs and their homes and their families. 
And over time, the two chose to become yoke mates, to become yoked together. For those urban dwellers began to finance the wandering missionaries so that together the two could go forth and spread the gospel. Now, this scenario could have worked the other way. The two groups could have remained divided. The wandering missionaries could have looked at the urban dwellers and said, you guys are not serious enough about the gospel. You're not serious enough about your commitments. Or the urban dwellers could look at the wandering missionaries and say to them, you guys are a bunch of freeloaders going out into the world and expecting people to give you everything. The division could have defined and stopped the Christian movement from spreading. But instead, it became yoked together, the one funding the other, the other helping spread the gospel and going to places the other could not go. They made peace with each other in a way that was unique and meaningful and pushed the community forward. We see this peace a little bit later in the passage as well. We see it in another verse. We see it not just with the loyal companion, but with the standalone assertion that's embedded between verses 5 and 6. There are these wonderful words that are put there in there. Four words in the English translation, three words in the Greek. The Lord is near. Again, this peace, the nearness of the Lord. They're, they're curiously words that pop out from the page because they're sandwiched in between these two instructions. We hear, one, let your gentleness be known to everyone, and two, do not worry about anything. Those are pretty big instructions. And sandwiched in between them is this, just stand alone. The Lord is near. Now, admittedly, Paul probably meant it more in a temporal sense, that the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord was probably soon upon them. But it also works in a spatial sense, the idea that God is within this community. The nearness of the Lord can be felt upon it. And when that happens, we can find that peace together. In England, the Buckingham Palace, when the queen is in residence, there's a flag that flies above the palace. It tells everybody that the queen is in residence, that the queen is there. I was thinking about that because scripture promises where two or three are gathered in God's name, he is present with us. There are senses in which that when two or three come and gather, that presence is made known. There doesn't need to be a flag, but there's something that comes about when they're gathered in the name of God. This peace that just resounds so clearly that a visible sign of an invisible grace that's within is made so sure and so clear. One of my earliest memories uh, is of going to church and of finding that peace. That peace as I would experience something in church that I had not experienced anywhere else. And I still remember as a small child seeing it come to pass of seeing people who were so different from one another coming forward to the communion table, of watching as mothers with babies on their hips or older people with canes teetering on their way forward or nicely dressed professionals or hippie Chapel Hill types, all of them would come forward 
to that table. And as a kid, it just struck me that there's something different. I'd never seen that anywhere else. There's something special. There's something transcendent. There's something that brings about peace. When the community is gathered together, the Lord is near. We don't just profess it. We feel it in our hearts and in our souls. But perhaps most convicting is the passage, uh, the verse at the end of the passage, verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And when I first looked at this, I thought, peace and guard, peace and kind of this guarding military thing, that doesn't typically go together. But as I thought more about that, no, it does. Because you think about soldiers, they guard and create peace. You think about fortifications, they are physical guards that keep the peace. And there's this beautiful imagery here that God is saying that God will give a community that peace and that God will stand guard. God will protect it. God will make sure that nobody can get into it and destroy it if we will only gather together, form a colony of faithful people, a sanctuary, a harbor, that God will guard it and keep it safe and true and pure and healing. God puts his peace in the community. And as I said earlier, this runs against everything else in our world. We have a world full of societal messages, social media, materialism, politics, corporate power plays, all sorts of things that are designed to rob us of our peace. And yet God's saying, no. Look around. I will give you a peace. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ gathered here today at Soapstone. When you can't find that peace alone, let us do it for you. How fitting that this falls on World Communion Sunday where we don't just celebrate that the peace of God that God instills in us and gives to us and protects for us is not just only in the people gathered here, but it is in people gathered throughout this world who today collectively will be coming to the communion table saying that the God that we celebrate and we remember and we honor and we are transformed by brings peace here and in China and in Africa and in Europe and in Asia. This peace is surrounded by all. This peace is given by all. And this is revolutionary. This is countercultural. This is such an amazing gift that we can claim and we can celebrate. When everyone else is trying to take the peace away, we can find it here. And yes, I recognize those churches have their fair share of disagreements. But the peace that we get doesn't come from within us. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that comes from God and God alone. And it can't be taken from us because it's not from here, it's from there. And God will continue to give it, to instill it, to protect it, and to help it every day. As I shared at the beginning of the sermon, I was so mindful that day at that funeral of my position at the front of the church. 
But all these years later, actually perhaps what I take most were those who were sitting at the back of the church. It was one of those great big downtown churches with a big balcony. And in the balcony of that church that day sat the high school choir. And the choir stood and sang. Just imagine a group of grieving, hurting teenagers who stood up and lifted their voices and invited the rest of the congregation to join them in song, tentatively proclaiming hope against hope that together we just might be able to find peace. Imagine that. Glory to God. Amen.